number of years ago, there was a, a movement launched, and it was designed to uh, combat the uh, spiritual lethargy among men. This uh, particular movement called Promise Keepers stressed the idea that men needed to make and keep a series of uh, promises or commitments to God and to their families and to the community at large. They were to act in responsible ways in these various relationships. While the movement had many problems, it's not very popular today. It's greatly diminished. But it had, uh, at its core, really one fundamental flaw. And the fundamental flaw was is that we do not relate to God based on the promise that we make to Him, but instead we relate to God based on the promise that He makes to us. That is a huge difference. And the most fundamental of those promises that God makes is found in Genesis chapter 12 in the unfolding of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is God's most fundamental promise to all of mankind. It is really the foundational covenant by which God relates to you and I. And for 1,500 years, God temporarily administered the promises and the entrance into the blessings of that Abrahamic covenant through a series of, through a promise really that he made to Moses on Mount Sinai. But it was a temporary administrative covenant, the Mosaic covenant, as I say, designed to, to uh, provide the means to receive the fundamental blessings that lay underneath into the Abrahamic covenant. And after those 1,500 years with the coming of the Messiah, the Mosaic Covenant passed away and the, the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant are now administered, the blessings that is, are administered to people and entrance into the Abrahamic Covenant comes through what is called the New Covenant. The New Covenant. Now, we live 2,000 years this side of the cross. And so... For us, some of this is, sort of seems like basic stuff. It, it just doesn't seem that revolutionary that, that God would change the way He deals with mankind. But tonight, as we look at the New Covenant together, we're going to see a number of, of really important features of it. And first and foremost is the fact that it was originally given to the nation of Israel. That the New Covenant belongs to Israel. Now, looking around the room here, the vast majority of us are Gentiles, not Israelites. So how did we get here? How is it that we receive the benefits of the new covenant? And what are the advantages that come to us under this new covenant? Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. And we're going to see if we can answer those questions and make things a little bit clearer tonight. Hebrews 8. And I'm just going to read the whole chapter, all 13 verses, so we can get a running start at this. Now, the main point in what has been said is this, that we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. 
a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the, hand, out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. In verses 7 through 9 here, we really are introduced to this new covenant. And what we are basically told here is the fact that there's a new covenant enforces the reality that the old covenant wasn't perfect. It wasn't adequate. It wasn't doing the job. You can just see it there when you when you look again at at verse seven, it says if it had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second one. If it had done what it was needed to do, then there would be no reason for a new and improved model, a better covenant, as you see the title of tonight's message. So that first covenant had some serious flaws with it, flaws that caused it to become obsolete. What are those flaws? Well, basically, the flaw or flaws of this new covenant is that it lacked the power to ensure the fulfillment of its promises. That is that people could mess it up. They could, by their own disobedience and inability to keep its terms and provisions, they could cause it to be less than perfect, to, to fail to fulfill the purposes for which it was given. So the fault lays, as he says in verse 8, the fault lies with them. You see that? It lies with them, not with the covenant itself. It's not that God made something that was, that was you know, a piece of junk that wasn't good enough. It was that the problem lies with the people to whom the covenant was made. Let me just refresh your thinking on this a little bit. Sunday evening here, we've got to get our minds back into the Old Testament. In uh, Exodus 24, verse 7. Don't turn there. I'll just read it to you. But there, Moses is confirming this old covenant, this what I call the administrative covenant, this means and mechanism by which you would receive the blessings of the Abrahamic promises. Exodus 24, 7, it says, Then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. 
And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. They, they started out well. But if you know the history of Israel at all, you know that it wasn't very long at all, was it? The ink was barely dry before they were falling and tripping and failing to meet the terms of the covenant. And in fact, the history of the nation of Israel as recorded for us in the Old Testament is one failure after another. One one incident of inability to meet the terms of the covenant. They, they desired to do it. They said they would do it. They promised that they would do it, but they hopelessly failed to do it. Why? Well, Paul explains it as a... In a fuller way than the writer says here over in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, and just listen to what he says there. He says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. See, that's the problem. What the law could not do was make people right before God in a, in a state of perfection because it was weak through the flesh. It was constantly failing. Those who were participants in that covenant could not keep its terms. So that which the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the scriptures. The old covenant had to go. It had to go. It didn't work. It wasn't working. And the reality of that fact was readily apparent to anybody with spiritual eyes to see. More than 800 years after the institution of that covenant, God prophesied that it was going to go away, that it was going to be replaced, right? That he was going to make a new covenant with his people. Look again here at the text. And I don't know how your Bible designates Old Testament references, but the way my Bible does is it sets it all up in capital letters, and what I'm looking at in, in verses 8 through 12 is really a, a, a quotation out of Jeremiah, the prophecy of Jeremiah, where in, through the mouth of that prophet, 600 years before the, this time, the book of Hebrews, 800 years after the giving of the law to Moses, God says he's going to make a new covenant. He's telling them, listen, it's not going to, this, this covenant is not going to last. A new one is coming. Now, just uh, again, by way of review, think with me, what was it like at the time Jeremiah promised them that something new was coming? It was a time of deep spiritual depression in the nation. Before that, 120 years or so before that, the northern tribes had been taken away into the Assyrian captivity, right? 722, they were, they were gone. And the reason they were gone is because of their failure to keep the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. So they were swept away. The southern tribes were very soon to be overrun by the Babylonians. You could, you could hear the drumbeats in the distance. We don't know exactly when Jeremiah 31 was given in this prophecy, but, but I suspect it was only a matter of a few years before the southern kingdom also began to fall before the Babylonians. There had been reforms, true, under the good king Josiah. Do you remember him, the boy king, where they found the book of the law in the temple where it had been neglected for more than a generation? And they're, they're doing renovation work on the temple and they find the Bible. You know, it had been lost in the temple. No one knew about it. And they, they're knocking down an old wall and they find the Bible.
And they show it to the king Josiah and he, and he reads it and he, and he rends his garment and he falls on his face before God and he says, we've sinned greatly against God and he institutes nationwide reforms. It was an amazing time for the nation of Israel and it, and it looked like perhaps spiritual prosperity was going to return to the south, but I think Jeremiah knew better. I think Jeremiah could see through it. And, and although Josiah the king was earnest of heart, the people weren't. They were merely complying with the king's rules. And so, and in the providence of God, Josiah was killed by Pharaoh Necho when he went out to oppose him. You remember that? An arrow, it says, a stray arrow struck him and, and killed him. And so the reformer was gone. And it was only a matter of a few years before the nation was overrun by the Babylonians. The nation was plunging into spiritual darkness. And in the midst of that dark day, God speaks to His prophet and says, Listen, there's a new covenant coming. The old one will pass away. Behold, I will make a new covenant. Do you see it? Verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make or effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This new covenant will correct the weaknesses inherent in the old covenant. But what will it do? Well, this this new covenant will really bring about five changes, five significant changes. Number one, it will reunify the nation. Number two, it would be internal, not external. Number three, it will provide un Restricted access to God. Number four, it will provide complete forgiveness of sins. And number five, as will be later revealed, it will make a place for the Gentiles. Now, on your handout, you'll notice I gave you only four promises. Okay, the four promises that are embodied in the new covenant so that we will rejoice in our position in Christ. And I want to look at those four promises with you. But before I do that, just by way of background, I want you to understand the importance of the new covenant for the reunification of the nation. And it will play into what we'll talk about when we talk about a promise of Gentile inclusion. So allow me this, um, this, this rabbit trail here and talk about reunification. Look again, verse 8, and notice it says, I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That is a way to refer to the nation of Israel. Israel was the shorthand way of referring to the northern tribes, the ten tribes that had been swept away. And Judah was the shorthand way of referring to the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So when Jeremiah, God speaking through him, says it will be a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, what he is talking about is a reunification of the nation. That was important for them. They were God's chosen people, brought in under Moses and the bond of the Mosaic covenant to enjoy the blessings of Abraham's promise. But because of their disobedience, they have been broken and been swept away. And God's promising a time when he will put them back together. Now, what I want to do with you, I think, is, is, um, is look at some scriptures together. So go with me to uh, Hosea, okay? Daniel and then Hosea. If you're looking for your way, Hosea 1. Hosea, and this was true of most of the prophets, by the way, the Old Testament lived somewhat miserable life. It's not a great thing to be a prophet of God, at least not on, on this side of uh, the grave. And so Hosea was, uh, was given a, 
a very difficult challenge to marry a, a, a difficult woman. And uh, she bore him some children. And what I want you to see in uh, verse 9 is that Hosea's life becomes an enacted parable of the nation itself. Verse 9, And the Lord said, Name him, that is his second son, Loami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Literally, the boy bore the name, not my people. God is now saying to the nation, you are no longer my people. You are, I am no longer your God. He has severed his relationship with them. The relationship formed there at Mount Sinai where they promised to be his people. And he would be their God. He says, now you are not my people. But that's not the end of it because... Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, there is a, a prophecy of a coming day when that will change. Verse 23, chapter 2, he says, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who has not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So Hosea's prophecy says, the way it is now, you're cut off. You're not my people. I'm not your God. The, your, your failure to live to the terms of the covenant has severed it. You now have judgment awaiting you. But there is a day. There's a coming time when in grace and in mercy, I will pull you back. I will restore my relationship with you. And it will be a time of regathering. Let's go to uh, Jeremiah. Go left over to uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, and see how the prophet speaks of this regathering time. Remembering now that this is the days, the dark days for the nation. Southern kingdom swept away, or northern kingdom rather swept away. Southern kingdom has the Babylonians literally rapping at the, at the gate. By the way, when uh, Josiah, Josiah the prophet went out to intercept Pharaoh, do you remember this? It was to intercept his army from traveling north. And he was traveling north to, uh, to reinforce the Assyrians against the Babylonians at the battle of what's known as Carchemish. It was a city on the Euphrates River. And there at that battle, the, the allies of, of Egypt and Assyria were defeated by the Babylonians, by the boy, uh, the general Nebuchadnezzar. And there at that battle of Carchemish in, in 609, after defeating uh, Pharaoh Necho, excuse me, 605 was the, was the defeat of, of Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Carchemish, that's when Nebuchadnezzar came south to Jerusalem the first time and took his tribute and captives. And so this is, the, this is the backdrop of Jeremiah's prophecy. So listen to what he says here in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. By the way, you see this sometimes on, um, on various uh, trinkets in people's homes, and that's okay if you want to lift Bible verses out of context and apply them to yourself. You, I guess you can do that. Um, but just remember who it was written to, okay? Jeremiah 29, verse 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, and I will gather you from all the nations, and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. 
The nation is about northern nation, part of the nation already exiled, southern part about to be exiled. And and at this time when it looks like all is lost, God speaks to them through Jeremiah and he says, listen, I've got plans for you. Plans to do good by you. Yes, I have said that you are no longer my people and that I am no longer your God. But the divorce is not permanent. I will take you back. I will take you back. And so there will be this great regathering of the nation. Well, when does it come? Well, I'll turn over to chapter 30. And I don't have time to develop all of this, but let me just dip in here for a moment. Chapter 30, verse Four. Now, these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. Again, the combined nation. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great and there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble and he will be saved from it. What is he talking about? Well, beloved, he's talking about the great tribulation. He is prophesying forward to the time of the great tribulation when there will be seven years of unspeakable horror upon the face of this planet. When God will reach out and break the arrogant back of Israel and finally bring her to her knees so that she will look to her Messiah. It is also a time of punishment upon the Gentile nations, a time when the Satan will be allowed a much freer reign upon this earth. You know, you read the book of Revelation, it's an awful time. But the prophet said it's the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Jacob's distress. And after those days, the end of the seven years, when Christ returns, that he will bring about his promise of deliverance. And maybe the best way to to do that is keep going to the right here all the way to Zechariah. The second to last prophecy of the Old Testament. This, by the way, answers the question of those. Zechariah 13 is where I want you to go. Answers the question of those who say, well, yeah, but but is really not looking forward to a future time. It was looking for the time that a restoration from the Babylonian captivity. Well, no, that doesn't quite work because, see, Jeremiah is a post exilic prophet he was written he wrote after the return from the babylonian captivity and he is still looking forward to the days of the restoration of the nation what will it be like when the messiah returns for his people well if you look at zechariah chapter 13 verses 8 and 9 this is what i want you to see it says it will come about in all the land declares the lord that two parts in it will be cut off and perish but the third will be left in it And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 20 and let's add a little more color to this and then I'll comment on it for you. Ezekiel chapter 20. Verse 33. 
Ezekiel 20, verse 33, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. And I shall bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I shall bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I shall enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God, and I will make you pass under the rod and I shall bring you into the bond of the covenant and I shall purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I shall bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. What is he talking about? Well, what he's talking about is this. When Christ returns at the end of the tribulation to establish his millennial throne, to establish his thousand year rule on the Davidic throne there in Jerusalem, the time of, of amazing peace and prosperity upon the earth, there is a time that precedes it of judgment. A time when he brings the nation into the bond of the new covenant. And it is a time, according to Zechariah, when he will purge out the rebels of Israel. Two-thirds, it says in Zechariah, will be slain and one-third will enter in. Here in Ezekiel, he describes it as passing under the shepherd's rod. He will go into the wilderness with his people and he will judge them face to face. And as Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. Not every single Jew that lives, but those that are faithful, the remnant. Two thirds cut off in judgment, one third entering into the millennium and the bond of the covenant. What will it be like for those people? Well, go to Jeremiah 31. The first of many trips there tonight. Now let me read a little bit extended passage. What will it be like for those who enter into this new covenant? This covenant of reunification when the nation is brought back together, when the, when the exiles that have been scattered worldwide are finally brought back together. This, by the way, is the reason I believe that 1948, although it is of an interesting historical uh, uh, point of view, does not meet the terms of the new covenant. And the regathering of the nation. Listen, verse 23, Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Once again, they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities. When I restore their fortunes, the Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities will dwell together in it. The farmer and they who go about with flocks. For I will satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it will come about that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, basically saying that we're getting... The fathers committed the sin, but we're receiving the, uh, the penalty of it. They will not say that, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. In the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go forth, shall go out further straight ahead to the hill Gareb, and then it will turn to Goa. And the whole valley of the dead bones and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the book Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east will be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. He's talking about literal measurements for the city of Jerusalem. And he's saying the city will be rebuilt and it will be rebuilt in a a splendor and a glory beyond that which the people know. Its boundaries will be extended. It'll be time of tremendous peace and prosperity. Let me just add the words of the prophet Ezekiel to it one more time. Verse chapter 36 of Ezekiel's prophecy. Verse 24, Ezekiel 36. For I will bring you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Verse 28, and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. So what's he saying? What's the bottom line on all of this? The bottom line is there is a time for the nation of Israel to be restored. To be restored physically to their land. A time of great peace and prosperity, a regathering of the scattered tribes. By the way, they don't know what, you know, they can't trace their lineage. When the temple was destroyed, the the genealogical records are gone. But God knows which tribes they descend from. And God said he will regather the 12 tribes. It is God who will restore them physically to their land and he will bless them with incredible prosperity. And some might say, well, 1948, maybe that's it. It's a sort of a regathering of the remnant. They came from all over Europe and different parts of the earth. And they've come now into the land, right? And Israel has managed to to eke out an amazing level of of, uh, productivity and fertility out of that arid land. So maybe that's what, maybe the come, you know, maybe it's really happening. Well, the problem is no. And the reason is no is because not only is there a physical restoration, there is a spiritual restoration. There is a spiritual restoration and that has not happened. The nation is as hard and as cold and as uninterested in God as they were when they were ejected from the land. When they would have no part of their Messiah. When they said, we have no king but Caesar. They make a similar claim today. So the new covenant has not yet come. They have not yet passed under the shepherd's rod. The rebels have not yet been cleansed from their midst. They have not yet come into the bond Of the covenant, they have not yet been restored to their land. But there is a time coming. And that that restoration is to prepare them, is to fit them for the millennial kingdom. A time of spiritual renewal was commanded by Jesus at his first coming. 
Right. Matthew chapter four, verse 17, it says from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yet the nation didn't repent. Well, beloved, the only way they're going to get the kingdom is to repent. No repentance, no kingdom. They wouldn't repent the first time and the kingdom was deferred. It was postponed. It will come to them when the nation repents, when it bows the knee. And that will come at the end of the great tribulation. So with that as background, that's the introduction. <laughs> now, I want to look with you at the, at the four promises that are embodied here in the new covenant. I want to detail these four promises. So that we would rejoice in our position in Christ. I want to show you what these promises are. Remembering, and the reason I labored away at that is so that you remember they are Israel's promises. They are absolutely for the Jewish people. So how do we get them? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. How do they come to us and what comes to us? So let's look at, see, uh, see how well I do here. Let's look at these promises. The first one is a promise of inner desire, not outward compulsion. Again, go back to, you probably lost somewhere here, but go back to uh, Hebrews 8. Okay, that's where you need to be, and basically we'll stay there most of the rest of the time, except when we go somewhere else. So, okay, first promise is in verse 10 of Hebrews 8. It is the promise of inner desire, not outward compulsion. This is the covenant, he says, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and they will be. I will be their God. They shall be my people. The point is this. Under the old covenant, the laws of God were written on what? Stone. Stone tablets. And where were the stone tablets stored? In the Ark of the Covenant, weren't they? And where was the Ark of the Covenant stored? In the Holy of Holies, inside the temple. And the law sat there, graven on stone as a judge over the people. It was like the iron fist of the school teacher, demanding obedience and compliance. They were external to the people. The law of God was external. Now, look again, verse 10. A time is coming, he says, under the new covenant when the law becomes internal. That it is planted within our hearts. Within our minds. That's a, that's a Hebrew synonymous parallelism. Well, what does that mean? It means that there's hearts and minds. It's talking about the same thing. It's going to be planted within us. That's the point. The law is no longer external on a tablet of stone. It is now internal within our very hearts. Within our very hearts. Under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, rather, people obeyed because they had to. Because there were fearsome penalties that came to you for failure to disobey, right? Many of you have read through the scriptures with us this year, and you recall and remember those constant threat of penalty that came to them if they failed to obey the law. Well, that's not true. Under the New Covenant, people obey not because they're supposed to, but because they want to. That's huge. That is absolutely huge. Compliance with the law of God now becomes our personal desire. Our personal desire. 
It is the very essence of regeneration. Again, back to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. I'm not going to read it to you all. Well, maybe I will. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. It's going to change. In fact, when when Jesus spoke with Nicodemus in John 3, do you remember this? He said, listen, Nicodemus, unless a man be born from above... He's not even going to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus wants to engage him in some kind of goofy discussion about entering a womb a second time. And Jesus looks at him and he says, are you, you know, what is wrong with you? You are the teacher of Israel and you don't understand this most basic of concepts. Unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What was he talking about? He was lecturing Nicodemus on his failure to understand the promise of the new covenant. That no, Nicodemus is not outside. It's not ritual. It's not externals anymore. It's internal. It's internal. It's a change on the inside. It's a desire for God. It's a desire for God. Now, let me quickly add this uh, statement here, lest I be misunderstood. I am not saying that, the, that no one under the old covenant ever had a desire for God. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that someone under the old covenant never experienced any kind of a, of, a, of a relationship with Jehovah. I'm not saying that either. But what I am saying is that the, that the covenant itself did not provide this experience. That any kind of experience that a, uh, that a person under the old covenant had with Jehovah was, was outside of the covenant. It was not a product of the covenant. And in fact, those under the covenant, many of whom died in their unbelief. Isn't that true? They were cut off. They were all brought as a nation. They were all sprinkled with the blood at Sinai. They were brought into the covenant, yet they died in their unbelief. The law remained external to them. (coughs) Not so. Under the new covenant, the new covenant contains within itself the power to change people, to put a desire within their hearts. The desire is internal, not external. It's not compulsion that brings about obedience to the law of God, the word of God, if you will. So a a person's genuine desire for the things of God is according to the terms of the new covenant, is is an indicator of his true conversion. If someone has no desire for the things of God, there is reason to wonder if maybe they've never really experienced the new covenant. Because it is clearly said here that this is what it does. It puts the word of God, the love for God inside us rather than hanging over us in some threatening way. Why do we do what we do? Do we do it out of compulsion? Why do we come to church? Why do we read our Bible? Why do we pray? Why do we engage in in the spiritual disciplines? Is it because we have to? If it's because you have to, then that should, the alarm should go off in in your head. We do what we do out of a love of God, an inward desire 
to do that, to be with the people of God, to read the word of God, to pray, to speak to others about Christ, to, to participate in the spiritual disciplines. It's from the inside out. It's from the inside out. Second promise is unrestricted access. It is a promise of unrestricted access. Again, under this is verse 11. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Because, as I say, under the old covenant, many had no personal experience with God. And furthermore, anything they knew about God was given to them by a priesthood. They were separated from God by a, a series of, of barriers. They could only come so close, right? Um, they had the court of the Gentiles, and then you had the court of the women, then you had the court of the men, then the court of the priests, and the Holy of Holies. And so, depending who you were and what your, you know, um, who you were, what your lineage was, and your and your and your sex, male or female, you could only get so close to God. And so you were you were separated from Him, and you were reliant upon others, reliant upon others, priests and prophets, to make God known to you. While under the new covenant, that all changes. See what it says? Look again. You don't need, he says, everyone's not going to be, be there to tell you about it. You have immediate fellowship with God. Now, that's very visually portrayed for us, right? When Jesus was crucified, what happened to the veil? It was torn top to bottom. It was rent. It was ripped open. Access into the, into the place that the high priest, only one man could go only once per year. And he, they had to tie a rope around his ankle in case he messed up and God killed him. They'd drag him out. Now, unhindered access right into the presence of God. Unhindered fellowship. Immediate access. Intimacy. No privileged class standing between the believer and his God. All believers are priests, right? Isn't that one of the great principles of the Reformation? The priesthood of the believer. So we have, we have the immediate access, unrestricted access into the, into the presence of God. And it comes to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Again, Ezekiel 36, verse 27, he says, I will put my spirit within you. It is through the indwelling presence of the spirit of God that we have the access to him. And that we no longer, according to what John the apostle says, 1 John two twenty-seven. as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. John's not saying that there's no place for teachers in the church. John himself was a teacher in the church. What he's saying is that we're not dependent upon teachers in order to know God. Each and every one of us has access to his God. And that access comes through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Right? You pick up the word of God and you begin to read it. And if you are part of the people of God under the terms of the new covenant, the spirit of God working in you enlightens you to understand the truth. Maybe I can illustrate it for you this way. When we were uh, children and we wanted to hear a story, we would have to find an adult, right? We sort of saddle up next to them with a book in our hand. And, you know, depending on our level of ability to communicate, we'd either just kind of push it into their lap or we'd say, read to me, please. 
right? And they'd hoist you up into their lap or beside them. They'd open the book and they'd read it to you. And they'd explain it to you as you went. Well, as adults, we can pick up a book, right? Open it up and read it and understand it. Well, under the new covenant, the indwelling Holy Spirit makes us spiritual adults. He gives us the ability to open the word of God. To read it for ourselves and to understand what it says. John Wycliffe, in the 14th century, (coughs) was frustrated with the Roman papacy. And the fact that the scriptures were still in Latin, chained literally in some cases to the pulpit, unavailable to the people. And he told a priest one day in a a very angry way... (laughs) Because of that situation, he said that if God grants him the ability, he will translate the Bible into English so that that the common plowboy will know more of the Bible than this Catholic priest knew. Well, Wycliffe did that. He translated the scriptures from the Latin Vulgate into English and launched the beginning of the English Bible translations so that you all now have sitting on your lap a Bible in your mother tongue that you can understand. It's available to you. And the, the, the question now is, is what do we do with it? Right? We have the Spirit of God within us who, who, who enables us, illumines us to understand the Scriptures. The question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with your Bible? It always amazes me when uh, on Monday when they clean the auditorium. I guess we don't clean it on Monday anymore, Vince. I don't know what day we clean it now. Wednesday. We clean the, clean the auditorium on Wednesday and we find Bibles. In fact, it amazes me even more when we find them on Wednesdays, right? Because what I wonder is, what are these people doing Monday, Tuesday, you know? Where's their Bible? Don't they miss it? I know, they have five copies or they've got it all memorized and, you know, right? Yeah, right. Okay, don't leave your Bible or if you do, don't have your name in it. Okay? First lesson, don't put your name in your Bible in case you leave it. Either that, you better call the church and say, oh, I can't, I need my Bible, right? But no, I'm, I'm, seriously, it, 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 it is troubling to me to find Bibles that are left for extended periods of time. When so many went before us and shed their blood to give it to us. Third promise. Third promise tonight of the New Covenant comes to us in verse 12. And this is probably the capstone promise of the New Covenant. It is the promise of complete forgiveness. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is what people most need. And this is what was most elusive for them under the new covenant. The sacrifices of the Mosaic system could could provide a, a picture of what was going to come, but they could never provide the final solution. Basically, what people longed for is for God to forgive and forget. To forgive and forget. Personal forgiveness was available to them if they were repentant and contrite, certainly. But there was the constant reminder year upon year upon year as the sacrificial system continued to remind them of their sinfulness. The writer will make that argument for us at length over in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4 of this same epistle. That the final sacrifice has yet to be made. And so it's continually splashing out the blood of goats and bulls. And with it, a constant reminder 
of their sin in a, in a certain sense in which the guilt remains. But the promise here is, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. You know, in His holiness, when God remembers sin, He is obligated to punish it. His remembering of the sin carries with it an obligation to punish it. And so there is this continual sense of the, of the death of the animals as this temporary covering, this interim punishment until the final sacrifice is made, until the wrath of God is truly poured out on sin and has been extinguished. But under the terms of the new covenant, beloved, it's no more. Look again at it. I will remember their sins no more. It's worth it to do this. So go back with me to Colossians chapter 2. Verses 13 and 14. Listen to how the Apostle Paul says it there. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He literally, or not literally, but figuratively, He took all the law that, that was hanging over our heads and it was nailed to the cross to be done with forever. I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Back to Hebrews 8. One of my favorite movies is uh, the movie Gettysburg. There is a uh, number of scenes in there that I particularly enjoy, but there's one where uh, uh, General Jeb Stewart, who is the commander of the Confederate cavalry, who with the eyes and ears uh, in those days of the armies, and he had gotten himself waylaid and, and uh, allowed the armies of Robert E. Lee to sort of wander into Gettysburg blind. It's not where Lee wanted to fight. And when Jeb Stewart finally shows up, I believe it's on the second day of the battle, they've already been engaged for a day, he's called into Lee's headquarters to be reprimanded. And Robert E. Lee dresses him down for his failure to perform his fundamental responsibility of being the eyes and the ears of the army. And Jeb Stewart draws his sword and, he's, and he, he offers it to Lee and he says, you can have my sword, basically, you know, court-martial me, get rid of me, do whatever you need to do. And I love the line because Lee says, we'll speak no more of this. We'll speak no more of this. It's done. It's gone. It's forgiven. It's forgotten. And he restores Stewart. Well, beloved, that's under the terms of the new covenant. That's where we are. It's forgiven and it's forgotten. So when you're feeling guilty about your sin, when the devil comes and reminds you about it, right? When he tells you you're a failure, unable to live up to a way that's pleasing to God, you look him right in the eye, so to speak, and you say, you're right. You're absolutely right. I am a failure. I am an absolute failure. I'm a complete failure. I'm absolutely guilty before God. But Jesus Christ took the penalty for my sin. So bug off. Okay? Bug off. Go find somebody else to harass. I am completely forgiven in Christ. It's all gone. All gone. 
No regrets. No second, you know, thinking back on it and, and dragging it back up again. It's all gone. It's all gone. And that leads us tonight into our fourth promise. I don't know if I'd make this or not. I think I will. It leads us into our fourth. Let me just comment quickly on 13 just to deal with the verse. It says, whenever there's a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. He's just sort of a, stating the obvious. He's saying, you know, listen, it was, uh, it was 600 years ago that he told you this new covenant's coming. I mean, this thing's getting pretty old. By the way, the veil of the temple was rent 35 years before this. And again, you can hear the, you can hear the sort of the drumbeats of, of the armies of Rome under Titus. Uh, maybe as close as five years from the date of this epistle, they're going to completely raise Jerusalem. And put an end to the temple and all the sacrifices. Okay, so it's, it's growing old and it's ready to disappear. Well, it sure is. Okay, the whole sacrificial system is going to be wiped clean. All right, fourth promise. This is an important one. I mean, these others were very, very important. But this one's important to me. Okay, and I think it's important to you too. The Old Testament contains numerous indications that the Messiah's blessings would flow to the Gentiles. There's no question about that. I mean, it begins in, in uh, Genesis 12 with the Abrahamic covenant. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there is clearly a sense in which this great covenant of God by which he, he deals with mankind includes Gentiles. You could look, and we're not going to look there, but you could look at Isaiah 55, verses 4 to 5, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 22. There is clearly... Throughout the Old Testament, an expectation of Gentile blessing from Israel's Messiah. But nowhere, and catch this, nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the Old Testament does it ever hint even at the reality that God is going to establish a new entity called the church. Okay? Again, I, I just don't have time to turn. i got to turn there. Ephesians chapter 3. If we missed the last song, then... Uh, so be it, right? Ephesians 3. I've got to turn here. Ephesians 3. You must understand this. Okay? The Old Testament does not speak about the church. It speaks often about blessings coming to the Gentiles through Israel's Messiah, but never the church. Ephesians 3, verse 3. And by revelation. Okay? Revelation means God speaking directly to Paul here. There was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief, and by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What promise? The promise of the new covenant. The promise of the new covenant. I mean, formally, the state of Gentiles... Is given to us over in Ephesians 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is a dismal place to be. That is five significant disadvantages. That the Gentiles have. Basically what it says is they're cut off from God. Even those Gentiles who converted to Judaism. Right? Even they could only come so close. They were never allowed to come as close as a full, as a full Jew. 
They were always still a half step off. But then an amazing event happened. An amazing event. On the night of his crucifixion, Jesus gathered in the upper room his disciples. And he made this incredible statement. Recorded for us in Luke chapter 20, verse 22. Listen. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do you understand that? Jesus is saying to those 11 disciples gathered with him in the room that the new covenant is here. It is being instituted. And just in case you miss it, 50 days later at Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit comes and with him comes the, the indwelling spirit, which according to Ezekiel 36 is the sign of the new covenant. We enter into the age of the spirit. The new covenant has begun. So how can the Gentiles enter into a covenant specifically promised to the Jews? Right? We, we labored away at that earlier this evening. It was clearly for them. There's no question that it was for them. So how do we get in? How do we get in on it? And by the way, we are in on it. Okay? Just in case you're, you know. And there is some, there is some confusion on this. And I'll, you know, just deal with that quickly. But... The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.25, I'm going to read it to you. In the same way, he took a cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Who's Paul writing to in 1 Corinthians 11.25? He's writing to Corinthians who are Gentiles. So he is writing to a Gentile church and saying that the new covenant has come. And again, just in case you, you, know, you, you doubt that, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, God who made us... Uh, also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant. So Paul's a servant of the new covenant. The new covenant has clearly come. So how do we enter in? We're Gentiles. It was Israel's promises. Well, there are some, and there are a significant some within the church who say that because of Israel's disobedience, they have been cut off from God and that the new covenant promises have been forfeited by them and then they come to the Gentiles. They come to the Gentiles. This is really the essence of amillennialism. That they have forfeited it. That the church has replaced Israel. Well, I don't think so. Okay, I don't think so. I think, I think, the, I think the, the, the prophets were very, very clear. Very clear. And again, Zechariah written after the exile, saying it's still future, it's still coming. There is another group who say there are two new covenants. There is the new covenant with Israel, and then there is the new covenant with the Gentile church. This, by the way, is, uh, is old dispensationalism. Many of the earlier writers out of Dallas Seminary would uh, promote such an understanding that there were two new covenants. But I don't think that works either. I, I just can't find anything in the text that really indicates there are two new covenants. I think that's a presupposition. So the answer is, ding, I think the answer is, I'm, pretty, I'm persuaded in my mind the answer is, that Israel retains the promise of the new covenant. It is absolutely going to come to her. But in the meantime, the church 
receives the spiritual blessings of that new covenant. That those spiritual blessings, the inner desire, not the outward compulsion, the promise of unrestricted access, the promise of complete forgiveness come to us. How? How do the promises made to the Jews come to the Gentiles? In Christ. In Christ. In the Jewish Messiah, by virtue of our spiritual union with the Jewish Messiah, we receive the benefit of the spiritual promises made to Israel. We receive the benefit of the spiritual promises that are, that are included in the Abrahamic covenant itself. Lest you think I am too far afield, we won't turn there, but Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says exactly that. He says exactly that, that we are the spiritual seed of Abraham. We get the spiritual side of the Abrahamic covenant. The physical side is still there. There is going to be a homeland for Israel. For Israel, not for us. So when we embrace Christ by faith, we receive the promise of inner desire. We receive the promise of unrestricted access. We receive the promise of complete forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Beloved, my, uh, my ancestors were pagan idol worshipers in Scotland. Cut off from God, without hope in the world. Excluded from the promises of the covenant. I had no hope. But by the grace of God, I have received the spiritual promises given to Israel. And I am now a recipient of the new covenant and all of its blessings. The same is true for you. Your lineage was cut off from God too. But in Christ Jesus, by his grace and mercy, you now receive the new covenant. And in that, we can rejoice both today and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, our Father, this was a um, pretty big meal to digest tonight. There was a lot of um, a lot of theology, a lot of scripture verses to be brought together and and correlate. We pray, our Father, that your Holy Spirit, who is our inward teacher, would straighten out any confusion in our hearts and minds, help us to rightly understand the word. But we want to leave here tonight, Lord, with, uh, with praise on our lips, thanksgiving to you, because we have been made beneficiaries of the great promises given to your people so many, many years ago. We thank you that our sin has been completely dealt with, fully extinguished. And we thank you, our Father, that, that within our heart now resides a desire to glorify you, to live for you. And not just the desire, but the indwelling presence of your Spirit who gives us the power to obey. Thank you for changing us. And thank you for not asking our permission to do so. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to let you go tonight. We'll sing uh, next time double.